What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest today is Brent Smith. Frontman for the band Shinedown. Brent, good to have you on the podcast. So I've got to ask, Shinedown has 19 number one rock tracks. Why are more Americans not familiar with the music of Shinedown? Well, it's interesting because I think it's changing. I think more Americans, actually, I think the entire world is getting more and more familiar with us. Um, But I mean, we've been a band for two decades now, and we've gone through... Um, we're always going down these very unique roads with our career. We've always built the band around the audience and growing the audience. Um, but if I'm being totally honest with you, the touring last year was some of the biggest that we've done in the last two decades. The band is consistently growing every year and the band is consistently going to more countries every year. Uh, it is expanding. It is getting bigger, but that's all credit to the fan base. Okay, so who is a Shinedown fan? Anyone from anywhere at any time can be a Shinedown fan. Well, no, I'm asking different. You know, you're in touch, you know, with your audience. Uh, what do you think they're, who are they? What are they like? What's their personality? What are their uh, desires, et cetera? I think that they, I mean, listen, uh, as the main lyricist in the band of two decades, I've been talking about mental health for the better part of 20 years, even before it was in headlines and people were talking about it in in media, you know, politicians were bringing it up, so on and so forth. You know, it's 2023 and mental health is a major topic uh, now, but it's been a major topic my entire life. So I think to answer your question, you know, a, a Shinedown fan is somebody that more than anything, I think they're tenacious. I think that they're humble. I think that they, um, at, at certain points in times in their life, they have to understand that 
It may take a minute to figure out who they are, and that's completely okay. We're all a work in progress. And I think growth is a big part of what we do as a band and our connection with our audience, whether they've been there from the very, very beginning or they're just finding out who we are. Um, there's such an intensity between the relationship of the band and the audience um, because they know what we're trying to do, especially in the music on record, uh, but also the live performances are an experience. Uh, one of the main things I do at a Shinedown show is we intro first two songs. After that, I ask the audience, if this is your first time seeing Shinedown, raise your hand. Don't be shy. And continuously, 80% of the audience, no matter where we are, continues to raise their hand, which shows us that it's growing. But then I tell everybody to look to the left and look to the right and know that the person next to them, you may have not met each other until tonight's show. But that's all going to change now. So everybody turn to your neighbor. I want to see you high-fiving each other, shaking hands. Tell everybody it's awesome to see them at the show. And that kind of breaks the ice with everyone. And it just becomes this experience. Okay, let's, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. Let's start with the mental health component. So how did you get motivated to address that? I think I got motivated to address it because... Growing up, I was a bit, I don't want to say necessarily that I was ostracized, but I was not the cool kid. I was also the weird kid. Um, you know, I grew up in a very sports-driven family, um, and I was always artsy. I was always, I mean, I started writing songs when I was 10 years old. And, you know, for, for me, I think that what I had to understand about you know, who I was is I had to be honest that I loved music, that um, it was a, a part of who I am. I remember like my mom and my dad, as I got older, I, you know, I started to try to tell them what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. Um, and, and when you have this dream or this desire to be something that uh, maybe they've never seen before, or maybe it doesn't run in the family or what have you. Uh, it was just important to me anyway, to be able to express who I was and the vision that I had. Uh, you know, when you're 15 years old and you start writing songs and these songs are, the lyrics in these songs are extremely deep and it takes a lot to kind of go there. And my parents would like grab these journals and look at it and stuff like that. And they would just be like, what is going on? Like, where is all this coming from? Um, and it, it was just a part of, of who I am. If I answered that question, right. I think I got. No, no. Okay. That, that's all. That's all very interesting. And we'll get back to some of the, what you're saying there, but you say in your lyrics and the image of the band, you're very focused on mental health. Is that based on personal experiences? Uh, have you contemplated suicide, attempted suicide? What's going on there? So the mental health of everything in the band, why it's important to us is that we've lived through it uh, on a daily basis. I have a substance abuse addiction that a lot of people know about. And, you know, it's kind of out there. And I appreciate this, this interview right now because you're going, you're going at me 
with some pretty heavy material. It's making me really kind of center myself here and think about this. Um, I want to do everything in my power to, to the best of my ability and the band, the best of our ability to bring the suicide rate in America and the rest of the world down because we've lost so many family members. We've lost so many friends. And, and I'm talking about even when I was a teenager, there's a lot of kids. And even when I got older and left home and went out to pursue what I do now, you would get the phone call that this person passed away. My friend from here passed away. How did they die? They killed themselves. And it, it just seemed like it was, it would pile on and it would get worse and worse and worse. And so the, the music that we, we talk about, it's one of the reasons why I named the band Shinedown. I named the band Shinedown because it's the yin and the yang. Everything that's good has a little bit of bad, and everything that's bad has a little bit of good. There's a balance inside of it all. And sometimes you have to fall into a hole to figure out how to get out of it. So there is always this, there's this empathy in our music about triumph, about triumph and about overcoming and about being strong and, and going after that. But there's also those moments in the song where it just feels like sometimes like you don't understand why certain things are happening to you. And, you know, growing up, I know that kids today and adults today, everything that social media brings to you, everything that's put on a platform, everything that's exposed, everyone has an opinion, you know, that's constantly motivating everyone. And my son just turned 15 years old. And I always tell him, I say to him, remember, when it comes to the phone, when it comes to the internet, you're in control of the device. The device does not need to be in control of you. And, you know, listen, it's, uh, it's just something I think that I was, I was born with this uh, part of me that however I was feeling, I have to write it down. Whatever I experienced growing up, the scenarios, the situations that I've been in, all of those things that are very, very hardcore factors for me. I put them in these songs and the mental health aspect of it is goes back to what I said earlier, which was we're all a work in progress. It's the reality. Um, I don't want people to think just because they're in a rut or just because one moment in their life they're having a hard time that it's going to be like that forever. I also don't want them to think that they can just slide by. You've got to figure out a way to overcome. You have to build adversity into your core, into your being, into your soul. And that takes time. And I just don't want people to give up on themselves more than anything. And I don't want people to give up on this planet and this world because it's a, it's an amazing place, but it can also be very devastating. Like this is not an easy, uh, this life that we all lead, it's not necessarily always easy to navigate. So I try to create this soundtrack for people that keeps them on their road and if they want to change directions on their road that's totally fine but just don't give up going down those roads okay let's go back to the beginning you're from knoxville tennessee or that area tell me what the environment was for you growing up so the environment was very country uh even though the university of tennessee is there um it was very kind of backwoods, um, very good old boy 
good old girl type of, you know, upbringing. Uh, you know, we all had four seasons. That was nice. You know, lakes and mountains. It was a beautiful place to, to grow up and live. Um, but again, I'll be honest, being the weird kid <laughs> uh, didn't bode for me all, always so good. Um, you know, I was in sports. Uh, my dad was uh, a part of the school system and my mom worked for the banking system. And probably the one person in my life that uh, gave me my work ethic my drive comes from my mother's mother, which is my granny, who I talk about all the time. So, um, you know, I was pretty much raised by the three of them. And, um, and my, my other grandmother, who passed away before uh, the first record uh, from Shinedown was able to be released. But it was a good upbringing. I mean, it was a cool town for what it was. Um, you know, I went through high school, never went to college or anything like that. I was out of the house at 18 years old. But I had a pretty... Pretty normal upbringing, nothing too out of the ordinary. Uh, okay, how well did you do in school and did you have friends? I was terrible in school at the stuff I didn't care about. If I cared about it, I was really, really good at it. Um, so music and art, I did great at. <laughs> Math and arithmetic and you know English and some of the other things I didn't do as well. I did pretty good when I was in high school. I did good in sociology, though, and, and psychology. I was good in that. Um, and yeah, I had friends, but I'll tell you an interesting thing. From elementary school to middle school, um, all the same kids, we all, like, I went to school with all the kids in elementary school that I went to school with, all the kids in middle school, and then we all went on to high school together. And everybody was cool with each other in elementary school. And then everybody got kind of mean in middle school. It's always middle school. Like that's when everybody's like, everything's changing. Your body's changing. It's always a wild kind of weird time for, for, for any kid. Um, and then the interesting thing was for me, I, um, I went to a different school that I was zoned to uh, my ninth grade year. So I actually didn't go to the school I was supposed to go to. And I got kicked out of the school that I did go to. So I had to go back my sophomore year to the school that I was zoned to go to. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why'd you get kicked out? I just, um, I'm going to say something and some people are going to be like, really? But this is the only way I know how to say it. Um, I found myself. I got kicked out because I found myself. Okay. A little, and what, and what I a little was, deeper. Yeah. Well, I guess the way I was doing everything that I could to be the, the, the good kid for my parents and my mother and my dad and because they were just wonderful, great people. And, you know, they got this kid that they don't necessarily know what is they I was not easy to raise. Let's just put it that way. And so my parents wanted me to have um, and I got bullied a lot and got beat up a lot. And I had to kind of middle school was tough for me. I was one of those very awkward moments in life where my body was changing and it just was one of those things where every day I go to my I remember my eighth grade year every day was you know I had to kind of fend for myself uh it wasn't pretty so you asked me about did I have friends I had friends in elementary school and then I had friends in sixth grade but by the time I got to seventh and eighth grade um I just became like a punching bag and so my mom was like I'm gonna take you to a different school like let's 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 start over. Let's try something else. So we go to to this other school, and I had a huge growth spurt. 
over the summer of my eighth grade year. So I got really tall and I had terrible acne when I was in eighth grade. And so I actually was one of the first 200 people in North America to take a drug called Accutane. Um, and um, I was one of the youngest uh, to take it, but it worked because I had severe acne um, and it worked and it cleared my, it cleared my skin up. And uh, so mind you, I grew, I got a little bit better looking. I was on the football team and the wrestling team, but I just remember one day just thinking to myself, and this was in the middle of the school year, I was like, this isn't who I am. Like this, this is just not who I am. And like, I was into punk rock. I was having to kind of um, hide what I was listening to. Uh, I couldn't really bring it into the house. You know, nothing against my parents. They just didn't understand, you know, like what was going on with their kid. You know, there was somebody in our, in our family that had a music background. So I kind of like came out of the blue. And so I changed and I got defiant and I got hard to deal with. And I stopped caring about like what people thought. Like I just wanted to be me. Didn't mean I was like a punk kid and I was mean or I was violent or aggressive or anything like that. It just, I wanted to come out of my shell, you know, and I didn't want to wear uh, khaki pants and I didn't want to wear like uh, button down shirts and stuff like that. I wanted to wear white t-shirts. I had a chain wallet, you know, I wanted to wear, you know, baggy jeans, you know, I wore Airwalks instead of like Nikes. Um, just things like that. And I did, however, uh, rub the principal the wrong way, uh, too many times, uh, and I got kicked out and then that made it to where I had to go to the school I was already zoned for. But when I went to my sophomore year, what was kind of interesting about that was I had been gone for a year. So like they remembered this kid that was kind of chubby and short and had really, really bad acne. All of a sudden I came back to this school and I had grown two and a half feet and, you know, I looked completely different. Like people didn't know it was me when I went back to school. So it kind of was like I, uh, I was able to have a bit of a do over, I guess you would say. Um, but all those people that I went to school with, now I'm back in a school with them. I didn't necessarily care to like reach out and befriend them or what have you. I was much more of a loner. And I was much more to myself. But I will tell you this. The cool thing was, by the time we got to our senior year, um, all of the people that I went to elementary school with and middle school and all that, everybody just kind of let their guard down. I remember this very vividly my senior year. Um, and everybody was cool with each other. Like when we graduated, like we just kind of forgot about all of that stuff. And we just, uh, everybody, we were all friends. It didn't matter if you were a jock or if you were... You know, if you were into sports or you were an academic or you were popular or you weren't popular, or, you know, if you were the weird kid or whatever, um, everybody was just cool with each other. So I do remember that being a nice way to kind of finish out that part of my my high school years. OK, so what was your exposure to music and what drove you to write lyrics? It's pretty instantaneous um, from the from the moment I was born, uh, as soon as I could read. Um, words affected me in a very, very powerful way. Um, and then as soon as I heard music and I could understand melody, that it, a good friend of mine once told me, he said, uh, you don't pick the music, the music will pick you. Um, it's what you do with it after that. And so, 
um, language was a big deal for me. And poetry was a big deal to me. I started writing poetry when I was 10 years old. Um, writing lyrics came a little bit later. But the music aspects of things, um, it kind of started with like the Beach Boys, I remember, and Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. That was kind of the early stuff. Um, and these were like songs that had melody to them, but they also like very clever lyrics, especially the Waylon Jennings stuff and the, the Willie Nelson stuff. Like that was really deep, like the things that they were talking about in those songs. And Johnny Cash. I remember I found, I found Johnny Cash when I was 14. It really kind of changed my life. And I didn't listen to the Beatles until I was 24 years old. Um, I remember the very first time I heard the White Album, I was in my mid-20s. Um, so, but very early on, just language was a, was a big deal for me. And so at this point in time, are you a reader? Yeah. I mean, not reading like necessarily novels or books of that nature, but what I was reading was a lot of, I was reading a lot of music magazines. I was also reading a lot of, you got to understand something too, like, it was hard for me to go into a store, you know, even before I was a teenager and get kind of the books that I wanted to read. And if you were at a library, you could only get so like my mom would only allow me to get so many things. And then by the time I got to middle school, there were certain things that we had to read. When I got to high school, that's when I read some of the classics. Like I remember, I remember reading Moby Dick when I got to, uh, to high school I remember all the Canterbury Tales that you had to read, um, which is like some really, really heavy stuff. Um, but Shakespeare was a big deal. I read a lot of Shakespeare. I can't remember a lot of it to this day, but I just, I remembered I, I was, it was a lot of Shakespeare at that time. And I read a lot of Nietzsche um, because Nietzsche is a huge part of my life too, just from a, and why I say that is, he had a tormented life. I'm not saying that my life is tormented, but when I read the quote that he penned, which says, without music, life would be a mistake, I was like, there's my guy. That's, that's my guy. And uh, I just kind of went down a rabbit hole, all of his work, um, to just kind of see what was going on in his mind. Him and Edgar Allan Poe, you know, I love the, you know, if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss will stare back. It was always those types of individuals. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. What turned you on to punk rock and when did you form bands? Punk rock was, uh, when did I get, I'm trying to remember the exact time that it happened. I went backwards a little bit. The, the album that got me into punk rock was Appetite for Destruction. And I have to set the scene a little bit because I was in fifth grade and there was music class. And on Fridays, the teacher was very kind of open and uh, very free and and what have you. She was rad. I can't remember her name, but I just remember like she wasn't a normal music teacher for a bunch of fifth graders. So she would let students bring in tapes and and what have you. And you could on Fridays, everybody would get to listen to different music. So there was like rock and roll. There was pop music. There was, um, you know, hip hop. It was all kinds of stuff. And I remember this kid brought in Appetite for Destruction. This was like 1989. And she was just kind of doing her own thing. I'll never forget it. She was just doing her own thing. Meanwhile, like it's so easy came on and it was just like all the other kids weren't even really paying attention but i was like what did he just say and then like welcome to the jungle and then like mr brownstone I mean, listen to the whole record i just remember all the kids were all running around doing other stuff and i was just sitting in front of this stereo in this classroom listening to what was coming out of these speakers because i had never heard anything like it in all my life and a lot of it had to do with the language um, and then, so that kind of got me into, uh, I wanted to know more about that and, you know, Operation Ivy, I remember finding out about them and then Fugazi was next and then Minor Threat and then the Dwarves were after that. And I'm trying to remember, Exploited was in there. But when I found, uh, when I found Bad Religion, like that changed everything too. Once again, very lyrical, like really intense, really thought out, really uh, like spell, like spellbounding. Um, as far as, you know, punk rock is concerned, I think that, you know, bad religion, as far as the lyrics are concerned, that's the most profound punk rock band on the planet in my mind. Okay. So you get turned on to all this music. When do you become a performer? 14. 13, 14, 
Um, I, uh, I started playing in a group of guys. Uh, I, I remember my very first performance in front of an audience was a talent show. Um, I think it was sophomore year when I went back to the school I was zoned for. Um, me and like three other kids got together. I remember the drummer though was like five years older than everybody else. And, um, he had a drum kit and he had like a garage and he had an extra bass and a bass amp. And he had like this really old crate amp and a guitar. And there were two other kids from school. We didn't really know each other that well. I can't remember how we actually got hooked up, but I remember we just, I, I remember being in that garage at that house and they're like, they didn't know how to play anybody's music. Like we didn't know how to play any, any songs or anything like that. So we made up our stuff. And I mean, it was awful. It was terrible. And we were just like banging on this stuff. And it was very, very, you talk about punk rock. It was worse than punk rock. <laughs> um, uh, I think that Henry Rollins would have probably punched us all in the, anyway, um, but, or he might've dug it, who knows? Um, but it was very like, it didn't matter. It was probably a good thing that we weren't trying to play other people's music. We were trying to kind of go off of each other and see if we could create something together. And I remember we wrote this song that was decent enough to like hold a melody. And I, re I just remember going on stage and having absolutely no fear at all at this talent show at our school with these other guys. And the other guys were like really nervous, which makes it really funny now in my career because I'm terrified every night before I go on stage. 20 years doing this and, and before the curtain drops, I'm, I'm terrified. But I remember that specific moment in time, I had no fear whatsoever. It's like I wanted it more than anything in the world because it was a packed house auditorium. There was like 300 kids in there. And I just went for it. And I just remember kind of everybody being a little dumbfounded, don't, didn't really know what, what, what they were watching. They saw this kid walking around school and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I just opened my mouth. And, you know, it probably wasn't great, but it was me. And it was I remember it was primal and I remember it was real. Um, and then after that, I uh, towards the back half of like um, my my junior and senior year. I got in a band called Blind Thought um, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, we did some local stuff around the area. The band was kind of based out of Farragut, Tennessee, and uh, did that. And then I got into this other band called Dreve, which was actually the first band signed to Atlantic Records that was signed for 10 months, and then it was dropped, or we were dropped. And then about two months later, I was signed to a development deal with Atlantic Records, and then that- oh, oh, Okay, okay, a little, a little bit slower. My bad. What do your parents say when you don't go to college since your father was in the school system? Um, I think they knew it wasn't going to happen. Like, I, I think they knew. I don't. Here was the thing about me. I was not afraid of hard work. So at 14, I remember my parents back in the day in Tennessee, you had to sign. There had to be an order for the state. But. I'm trying to remember what the year would be. Doesn't matter. 14 years old, I go to my mom and my dad and I'm like, I want to I want to work. I want a job like on the weekends, like during the school uh during the school year and in the summer, I want to be able to work at least 40 hours. You know, and I said this at 14 years old. And they were like, "Do you think you can get a job?" And I was like, "Well, I can get a job if you sign this paper." 
You know, I'd gone to the library, found out about this paper that you could get from the state. If your parents signed it, it would allow you to work and this and that and the other. You could only do like 10 hours a week during the school year or something like that. But you could still go. And I wanted to make my own money. And uh, they, they, they did it. And so, um, you know, so for me, the whole thing about college and the whole thing about school, you know, the one thing my parents would say about me is, you know, it, as soon as I could get a job, I had a job. And then when I was, when I was 16, um, you know, I just, uh, I worked as much as I possibly could. And then, you know, by the time I was 18, I was working, you know, 60 hours a week, two different jobs. So my work ethic was always there. I just didn't want to go to school anymore. So I don't think they really, I was always, I always had a job. Okay. So when was the dream to become a rock star kindled? And did you graduate from high school? And say, yeah, this is my future. Um, yeah, I mean, but here's the thing about me. The rock star thing has never been me. Um, if, if I'm a rock star or I'm a performer, I'd rather be considered that in a lot of ways. Um, whatever my set time is, that's when that switch goes off. But the other 20 hours out of the day, 22 hours out of the day, um, I'm very, very hyper-focused. I'm very you know, centered in, and I'm able to juggle a lot of different things. But the, I guess you would say the performer aspect of me, the quote-unquote showmanship side of me is only turned on when it needs to be turned on okay so you're in this band how does the band get a deal with atlantic records well um talking about shakespeare it's kind of shakespearean in a way um so we were we were based out of knoxville tennessee and um at that time we were we were playing all over like we were actually playing regionally so we weren't just playing in knoxville we were going out of state by you know anywhere between 250 300 miles you know we'd go out and play anywhere that we could and was it covers or originals or both it was all original no covers nothing it was all original um and we had and we did uh we had two records come out both were on cassette and both were on uh, compact disc. And um, the drummer uh, befriended um, a young lady. And the best way I can tell everybody this, because it's such a unique story, and I'm kind of in the birthplace of all of this right now, the studio that I'm in at the moment in Orlando, Florida, because uh, I'm actually in JRR Studios in Orlando. Um, and so basically the drummer started hanging out with this young lady and this young lady, um, had a boyfriend and he was in a band signed to Atlantic and the young lady, uh, and I were friends as well. And I'm, I'm getting to it. Everybody's like, okay, where is it going? Um, but this young lady would turn out to be uh, the mother of my 15-year-old son. And so the, the reality is that we were playing all over Knoxville. And my son's mother, Ashley, she was engaged to a drummer from another band on Atlantic Records. And so our drummer in the band that I was in, Dreve, 
he gave her our CD. And so the A&R of that band, she gave this disc to him. Um, and basically, this is what happened. And who that was, was a guy named Steve Robertson, who was the A&R of Shinedown and has been the A&R for Shinedown for the last two decades. We've also been on Atlantic Records for the last two decades, which in this day and age is an anomaly. Um, also been with the same manager, Bill McGathy, for the last 21 years. So very family-oriented group. And so Steve-O gets this CD from, from this young lady who is the girlfriend uh, of the drummer of a band that he signed and he's working with on Atlantic. Doesn't really listen to the CD, throws it. This is back in the day when like A&R guys would have 100 CDs a day sent to them because um, it was like 20 years ago. And so one day he's kind of going through old stuff, what have you, trying to clean everything out, this and that and the other. He comes across the CD that he had kind of thrown off to the side or what have you. He puts it in and he goes to like the third song on the record. And uh, I let out this huge note in this song. Um, and so he contacts uh, her says, who is this? Who are these guys? Where are they from? Um, he then, Steve, flies to Knoxville. We set up a show. He brings uh, Michael Beinhorn, who, <laughs> if people don't know who Michael Beinhorn is, uh, he produced Celebrity Skin for Hole. Uh, he did What Hits by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He did Super Unknown by Soundgarden. I can stop there. Um, anyway, so he brings Michael Beinhorn to, to Knoxville and we have a showcase. Then we go out with them that night. And then basically, uh, we end up getting a record contract, essentially a demo deal. Um, and then the demo deal was there for about 10 months and we were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. Um, and eventually after around 10 months, the band was dropped. Um, and then about two months went by. And then I got a phone call from Steve-O, and Steve says, uh, I want to sign you again. And I'm like, you just dropped me. And he goes, well, I know. I want to sign you to a development deal, which I didn't know what that meant. And so it was really kind of created by Ahmed Erdogan, who was the founder of Atlantic Records, God rest his soul, um, and uh, who was an, an amazing influence on my life on, on so many levels. Um, so the deal was six months, essentially Steve-O had with me for us to start producing and sending the record label actual songs, like songs that were starting to show actual growth, like actually that there could be something there because he essentially told me, he said, I know that you're in a band and I understand that brotherhood and I understand what you're trying to do and what have you, but you have to understand my side of this. I think you're a performer and I think you're a songwriter. I think you're with the wrong people. I need to put you in front of the right people to see if my hunch about what I think you are and who I think you are is real because I never wanted to be a solo artist. I always wanted to create a band and I signed that deal with him. And then three years later, shine down released its debut album. Okay. When the original band got dropped, 
did you think your future was over? No, I had none of that. Um, the thing was, what was interesting was this. Steve did do something very unique. Um, right before the band got dropped, he sent me, granted, I'd never been on a plane before. So he goes, he, I remember he called me. He goes, have you ever been on a plane? I'm like, no. He's like, well, I'm going to send you to Los Angeles because I want you to work with two songwriters. And I was like, what? And uh, so that the very first time I got on a plane, I went out all the way from Tennessee to Los Angeles. And I worked with uh, John Shanks and I worked with uh, Tommy Sims, two wonderful, wonderful songwriters. Um, and what I was able to do was, you know, work with these guys. And we wrote, me and Tommy Sims wrote three songs together. Me and John wrote uh, two together. The unique thing about being with John Shanks was the fact that Vinny Caliuto was a friend of his. We were in Henson Studios and my those first demo, those two demos of those songs have Vinny Caliuto playing drums on them, which is crazy. Um, but uh, and then he sent me to Nashville. Uh, I went, I came back to Tennessee with those songs. Steve had them. Then he sent me to work with Desmond Child, and um, I wrote a song with him. And uh, and then you know I get back, and uh, that's when the band gets dropped. Which was very, you know, it was interesting. I knew what, you know, you could figure out what was happening as I'm saying it, but he needed to see if there was something there if he put me with some other people. Because it wasn't like those guys wrote these songs. Like it was a very much like when I got into the room with these guys, these were songwriters, but it was like they looked at me and they said, What do you got? And I'm like, What do you mean? And they're like, What do you got? What are you working on? You know, sing me something. So I would just sing off the cuff and I would just write like on the spot. And we were just, you know, writing a song. Um, and you're just doing it. It was just evolving. Um, and I hadn't had that with the band. The band, it was like, you know, you get in a room, it's just bang, 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 bang. There's no time to like work out melody and work out lyrics. It was all on, everybody had kind of like a thing. You just had to, whatever was presented to you, that's just what you had to work with. And so it was just a different ex experience. So, no, I wasn't bummed out. Um, when when I got dropped, I you know, we I was a little, it was peculiar in a way it was kind of like wow i'm surprised it lasted that long but <laughs> i was you know and um but then he called and he was just like i want to resign you and then he he was like this is what i want to do this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Okay, so walk us through that and how you ended up in Florida. Well, um, a lot of that was, when I say that it was trains, planes, and automobiles with Steve Robertson, it was exactly that. Um, I don't know if I was John Candy or, or he was or who was Steve Martin, but anyway. <laughs> um, what I mean by that to everybody is we went on the road together any songwriter he could put me in front of, he did. He literally, for the first year from the development deal, I think me and him were on the road together probably 280 days out of that first year. And we stayed in the same hotel rooms together. We rode the same buses together, took the same flights, a lot of rental cars, a lot of miles on the highway. And he would put me in front of anyone that would take a session with me. And he worked me. I'd never stopped. And, um, and that lasted ultimately for about two years. And ultimately, what got me to Florida was Steve, because Steve was based here in Orlando. He was working, obviously, with Atlantic Records, but they were allowing him to be based in Orlando so that he could go out in the field and scout music and he could go where he needed to go. They didn't feel that it was necessary for him to be in New York. Um, and so that led us to Tony Battaglia. And so when I met Tony Battaglia, um, who was a huge part of the first two albums, um, and he's a part of the, and he's a part of number three too. Tony had uh, "Call Me," uh, was written by myself and and Tony uh, on the Sound of Madness album. But um, Tony was probably the first songwriter that he saw something in me, and he really took me under his wing. And so, for the better part of, I guess it was about a year into that signing and then I met Tony and then the next year was a lot of just working diligently with Tony and then Steve-O would get a line on hey this guy is working with this guy this dude's a bass player this guy knows another guitar player 
but this dude's a really, really great drummer. Or this band, it was interesting how it was all put together. Um, and, and it was very organic and it was very much the universe is real. But when I say that Steve was literally doing the definition of what an A&R is supposed to do, he was really doing artist development. He was networking at all hours of the day. He never took any time off. Like he was always trying to find certain people. So it was like there were all these different auditions all the time. So that led me to meeting, uh, which would essentially be Brad Stewart. And Brad Stewart came in and I started to work with him on songs and what have you. And he had a drummer friend and we were working with him for a while and he had a guitar player friend and we were working with that for a while. So what happened was that led me to Jacksonville, Florida. I was working in Orlando with Tony and then I went up to Jacksonville. And then uh, Made in the Shade Studios, which is no longer there, which is owned by Melody, um, was owned by Judy Van Zant, um, Ronnie Van Zant from Leonard Skinner. That's his widow. And uh, in Jacksonville. So we were getting studio time there. And so what was happening was we were going into the studio and there was this really, really tall, black-haired, you know, really lanky dude, kind of intimidating looking. Um, but really, but but cool, cool looking, you know what I mean? But very like interesting guy. And that was Jason Todd. Um, and he was listening to all this stuff that was going on with, you know, me and Brad and these other players and what have you. And essentially there was a guy, a studio engineer named Pete. And Jason knew Pete because Pete was working at the studio and he was doing our demos and stuff that we were working on. Jason went to him one day after he'd heard me sing and things of that nature. And he said, I don't care what you got to do. You got to get me an audition with that, with that guy. And so he did. And then me and him started working with each other. And then that became me and Brad and Jason going down to floor, going down to Orlando, working with Tony, like nonstop. And then we started putting all these songs together and developing all these songs and writing all these songs. And then, you know, Rick Beato came into the fold and then Bob Marlette came into the fold. But I should say the most interesting thing of it all was it was the three of us at this point in time. But I, it was, and it's like this for every band, I feel. What is the hardest member of a band when you're, when you're creating a band? What's the hardest position to figure out? I know everybody says a singer. It's not a singer. It's a drummer. The drummer is the hardest thing to find. And so we auditioned seven drummers. And I'll never forget, there was a young man, uh, young, young man named Matt Brown. He's known very well in like the Florida circuit. Um, phenomenal drummer. Incredible drummer. And... He came in and he had gotten some of the demos and stuff like that and to work out this and that and the other. And so he comes into Made in the Shade with us and what have you. And he had some of the material. And so he starts to play. Granted, the other drummers that we had been working with at the time and trying to see if it was going to work this and that, they were okay. Um, but like Matt came in and just like, it was just a different animal. And so we actually were going to offer the gig to Matt. We were all excited. We thought he was going to be, you know, stoked and everything else. And um, I remember uh, 
we met him at a barbecue joint called Sticky Fingers. And uh, we we're like, we want to give you the gig. And he was like, yeah, I don't want it. And we were like, okay, uh, can you tell us why? Did we do something wrong? Did we say something? He goes, absolutely not. I think you guys are awesome. It's just not my style of music. It's just not really my thing. But then he goes, however, I have somebody that I think is 100% perfect for you. And so I was like, well, who is it? And he was like, it's a gentleman by the name of Barry Kirch. And so literally about a week later, he gave us Barry's number. I started talking to Steve-O about it. We talked to the band about it. And this, and that, you know, the guys were getting, at this point in time, like everybody was getting frustrated. And I just was trying to tell everyone, just calm down. It's going to be all right. Like, let's, let's give this guy a shot. And uh, I'll tell you what's interesting. Barry was number seven. And what's even more interesting is Barry's birthday is the same day uh, he shares a birthday with my dad. And there were just all these things that lined up all of a sudden. Like none of these other drummers had any. It was like all of a sudden it was like seven snake eyes. And then he's got my dad's birthday. I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, and lo and behold, his brother uh, happened to be a program director for uh, Planet Radio in Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> So, who is the who is still the program director for uh, for Planet Radio in Jacksonville, Florida, um, which is Chad Chumley? So, anyhow, Barry comes in, and Barry was completely different than everybody else because Barry came in with holy moly, man! Like I get chills thinking about this actually because I remember when he came in, he knew all facets of like drumming, like he knew how to play jazz and he knew how to play like traditional style and he knew how to play like reggae and all these different things and he funk and like inspired by prince and all these different things so he added all these wild elements to everything but he was very unassuming and very like nice to be here and stuff like that but when he came in and he auditioned it, you know it was a it was a it was a wonderful audition because he was kind of like doing a lot of different things but i remember his very his real audition the song 45 on the album, Leave a Whisper, that is the song that's been heard for the last 20 years, the drum take on that song, on that record, is Barry's demo drum track. Really? Yes. And that's his audition. That, that, that drum track is Barry's first time playing, and really, we showed him the song, you know, and everything, and then we were like, just come in here and play it. And we just all looked at each other. And uh, but that 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 drum take on Leave a Whisper on 45, that's basically his that's his audition. And it was uh yeah, it was after that, man, he was the guy. Okay. This band is not playing out live. Is Atlantic Records keeping everybody alive? No. <laughs> no. No, you you have to like um Judy helped keep me alive during this time. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I had run out of money because, um, and, and Steve was working on it. Like Steve was, cause we, he got to understand something at that point. We had a drummer. We could record, you know what I mean? Like we had the songs and everything ready. So it was time to go to Los Angeles. So we had a budget to go to LA and all this. But before that happened, there was like an eight month, nine month window 
where like nothing was happening except we were just practicing and trying to get ready and we were writing songs and songs and you know me and Barry were getting to know each other and all these types of things and what have you but I didn't have any more money so I actually had to go home to Knoxville for about two weeks but then I had to do sessions back in Jacksonville so I was driving back and forth from like Jacksonville to Knoxville like you know staying at $25 a night Motel 6 you know this and that and the other and then Judy found out about this um and found me um, and said, uh, well, actually, she didn't say anything. She just said, when's the next time you're going to, when's the next time you're going back to, to Knoxville? I was like, probably tomorrow night. And she's like, when are you supposed to come back here? And I was like, well, I mean, if, if I, Judy, it's not your problem. And she was like, I didn't ask that. And she was like, when, what do you need to do here? And I told her what I needed to do. And she was like, how long do you think? And I'm like, until they call us to LA, probably like six months. It ended up being eight months, but I just threw out a number. You know, I just said six months. And she was like, she handed me a key and she handed me a, uh, like a garage door opener. And she gave me, a, and she gave me a, uh, a, like a posted note with a number on it. And she was like, this is the guest house to my house. This is the gate you go in. It's yours. There's no furniture in there. There's a stove. There's a microwave um, and, uh, you know, refrigerator, you know, but it's a place to stay. And so she housed me for eight months rent free. And um, I told her that I would. Uh, that's a totally different story down the line. But uh, I told her, I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to pay you back. Um, but I promise you, I'll pay you back one day. And inadvertently, when the simple man thing happened and I call it a thing because it wasn't a planned thing at the time she owned 51% of the Leonard Skinner catalog. And I remember when that got released and she had the ownership of half the catalog, I remember looking at her going, I told you I'd pay you back. Okay. Amazing. So you go to Los Angeles. What's the experience of making the first record good back? Cause a lot of people say I was green. And if I knew better, I would have taken more control. How was it for you? It was an absolute blast. It was the most fun. I, I mean, honestly, it couldn't have been a better experience. We were in Los Angeles. We were raising hell. We didn't care. We were 22, 23 years old. You know, we were just having the best time. It was, it was amazing. And honestly, when we were in, when we were there, we got super lucky. We worked again, going back to, um, going back to Henson Studios. That's where we did a bulk of the first record. Bob Marlette was the producer. There's three producers on, Leave a Whisper, and there's three mixers. So Bob Marlette had the lion's share of the the album production-wise, but then Tony Battaglia is on there for um, the mix and the the production of uh, 45 and also a version of Burning Bright. And then Rick Beato is a producer um, on three songs on that record as well. And then for the Bob Marlette material, Andy Wallace mixed his stuff. So there's a lot going on on that record. Um but uh, the experience of being out there with Bob, like that was like the bulk of everything when we first got out there. And he was just great. And he had great engineers and just amazing people that we were able to work with because it was, he, Bob made sure that it wasn't like, it wasn't stuck up. Like, yeah, you're in LA. Yeah, you're at Henson Studios. But you're, this is your first record. Like, this is a celebration. Like, you're supposed to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay if you make a mistake. Yeah, the clock's running, but who cares? You know, it's like, we're going to get what we need to get. And, uh, I mean, it really was. It was an absolute blast. We had a great, we had a great time. How does McGaffey get involved? 
McGathy, you have to rewind it a little bit. Um, Steve-O, again, Steve Robertson. I, I can't stress the amount of how important Steve Robertson is uh, to this band and to this DNA um, of who we are. Um, he, this was right before, I think this was right about the time, and I know the clock's running right now, um, I'm trying to remember all the dates. It was probably right when we were still in a demo phase. We were still writing songs. Like the band had just kind of got going. Um, as far as like we we kind of got into a feng shui with each other and we were getting into a rhythm of songwriting. And Steve-O was like, I want you to go to New York. I want you to take a meeting with, uh, I want you to meet with a few people. I think there was four people I was supposed to meet. Uh, but the very first person I wanted, or very first, very first person I met, excuse me, uh, was Bill McGathy at one nineteen West Twenty Third Street, New York, New York. Um, I remember I walked in, and he didn't have a lot of time. And for people that don't know who Bill McGathy is, um, he is the rock and roll mogul. Like, he is the real thing. Like, you don't get more real than Bill McGathy. And Bill's the last one with a soul. And Bill, you know, I remember Bill always telling me from the, from the beginning, he was always straight up with me, and he said, remember, it's about the music 100% of the time. Don't ever lie, because you got to remember the lies. But the thing was, I walk into this... I mean, it's like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory for musicians. Like, I walked in to this, I mean, it was indie as indie could get. The entire walls, the ceiling, like how high the building was, everything. You walk into this room, and there's desks side by side with each other. They're catty corner to each other. There's no walls up between them. People are on the phones. The phones are ringing. Music's blasting. There are gold, platinum, diamond records everywhere. People are yelling at each other. Like uh, there, I mean, it was like, it was like the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> it was crazy, you know, and they're, they're getting records. They're getting ads. They're doing the thing, man. They're, they're, they're running the business. I mean, they're, they're really, they call it the music business for a reason because it, it's still a business. And I, it was my first introduction to that where it was just mind blowing. And so he, he, com he comes up and he was very, um, you knew who he was. Like I didn't have a picture of him or anything, but when he walked up, I knew who he was. Cause you could just tell it's just the way he carried himself. Um, and so he's like, let's go in the back and we go in the back. He's like, kind of like this conversation we're having right now, kind of asking me about certain things, but he looked at me at a certain point in time. He's like, and at the whole time we're back there, people are yelling for him and he's screaming, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'll call him back. I don't care. Like it's just in between me trying to stay on track with our conversation. Um, and I had to stop because it was just so much chaos. And finally, I just looked at him. I said, Bill, why should you be my manager? Like, I'm, I'm supposed to meet with all these other people today. I, you haven't, like, I haven't really had a, a chance to ask you anything. You're asking me everything, and I'm in your world, and this is really intimidating, man. But why should you be my manager? And he knew the label that I was on. He knew more about me than I did about him. And he looked at me, and he said, son, I'm going to tell you this right now. I am the only person that will be able to get you through that Atlantic record system. You can take that with you.
I got to go. And then he got up and started yelling at people and everything else. And I just, I, I came in there on my own. I just was, and they were like, uh, so I remember somebody looked at me and they were like, you can go now. I'm like, okay. And I just left. But there was something about that moment in time, man, where it was so rock and roll and it was so like real to me, like what was going on and that energy in that room. And like, they were in it. Like, like I saw it with my own eyes. And it, and it was like, this is real. This guy's not joking. This guy's real. I called Steve-O from a payphone outside of 119 West 23rd and said, I'm not going to any of the other meetings. I, wanted, I want this guy. And then I went back to LaGuardia and had to wait eight and a half hours to get on a plane and come back to, to Jacksonville. And there you go. And the rest is history. Bill McGaffey's a busy guy. He started out in radio promotion. Uh, they have multiple acts. He's obviously done a great job for you, but can you get a hold of him? We're going to be here for four hours. <laughs> Which, if, Bob, I'll, and, and I'm happy to do with you. I'm having the best time with you right now. Um, I talked to him for two and a half hours today. Like, that guy is my second father. So you can essentially get him whenever you need him. At any time. And by the way, it works both ways. He can get me whenever he needs me to. Like it's it's 20 years, man. And 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 I'm I'm looking forward to the next 20. You know, it's uh there's a we've been through a lot, man. We got a lot more to go through. But no, it's even from even from Jump Street, man, and I'll give you a story real quick and I'll make it short. But that first tour that we did where we went out he was managing uh three doors down at the height of their career um and we went out there with them and it was only supposed to be for three weeks and this is in 2003 so this was 20 years ago and we were only supposed to be on this tour for about two weeks we ended up being on this tour with three doors for nine months we went from being the first of four to by the last two months of that nine month run we were main support I learned a lot from that band. I learned a great deal from Brad Arnold about being a front man and just respecting your crew and all these different things. But I, I will fast forward here and I'll never forget the record had come out. We were on the road. We were making some noise, but it was a little funky. And I remember he came out to um, where the Stone Pony was. We were playing the arena there. Same arena where Jim Morrison got arrested for uh, indecent exposure. Up in Jersey. I think it's I think it's gone now. But it was first to four. We walked out there. It was eight thousand people, but there was only like three thousand in the building. Walked out there and you know, we were the first band of the night. And Bill hadn't seen us play live in like a few months. You know what I mean? And uh it was terrible. We were awful. I mean, we were awful. And I I knew it too. I I knew it. Because we had partied the night before and my voice was shot and everything else. All the things that you shouldn't do, you know. And uh, we got off stage and I find him out in the mezzanine of the arena. And everybody had gone in to go watch Three Doors. And he was all by himself. I walked up to him and he looked at me and he goes, hey. And I looked at him and I said, Please don't leave me. I know it wasn't good. I know we need to do better. I apologize. 
I promise you I will do better. Please don't drop us. And please don't give up on us. And please don't leave me. And he looked at me. And he'll tell you to this day <clears throat> that he didn't hesitate. But if I was him, I would have, like anybody would have, I would have taken a little bit longer of a pause. But he didn't. And he looked at me and he goes, I'm not going nowhere. Let's get to work. That's exactly what he said. He said, I'm not going nowhere and let's get to work. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Okay, was there a turning point or was it just... Long, hard work up the ladder. Long, hard work up. It's still that. It's still the mountain, man. Every, every, every single record, everything we do. Um, I'll give you an example. We had one of the best, uh, our touring schedule last year, we broke 26 merch records last year, you know, for, for us. You know, we were pushing the envelope. And by the way, I'm going to say this because it's true. Like, that's because of all of the foundation that we have and why I say that is it is a thousand percent the fan base, but it's also one thousand percent, you know, look, it's terrestrial radio in the very, very beginning. It's still terrestrial radio to this day, even with the consumption of music and the way that we platform everything, 
and streaming and all the way digital playlists, all those types of things and how you consume the music. It's still at the end of the day, if you mean what you mean as a musician, as a songwriter, as a performer, there's always going to be a ladder. There's always going to be a mountain. You have to constantly outdo what you've already done. That does not change. You have to be willing to go through just unparalleled obstacles in this business. Anybody that's listening to this right now, you can never phone it in, ever. You can never, ever have the mentality of, I have arrived. You might as well pack your bags. And the other thing, too, is if you ever fall out of love with it, then quit. You can always come back to it once you once you want it badly enough. You know what I mean? But don't let it, you know, I don't think that this industry should kill you either. You know, you got to you got to understand, like, if this is what you want and this is who you are, then drive, get in, get in the vehicle and drive. But yeah, there, there was no magic bullet to anything. There's no magic. You know, there's no method. It's just tenacity. Just unadulterated, pure tenacity. Okay, you're on the road for nine months with three doors down. You know, from the outside, it looks very glamorous. But from the inside, okay, you got the same people you've been hanging with, in your case, for not that long, but at least, you know, for a year or two. And you go on stage, you get this incredible reaction. And if you're lucky enough, you have a bus. It takes a long time to come down. You drive to the next city. This is why a lot of performers do drugs. So you're now having this experience. How do you cope and to what degree do alcohol and drugs come in? Pretty much right there from the start. It, um, yeah, man, it's, uh, I mean, it came in first record first time we got, I mean, but it was happening. What I would always try to maintain in the studio was that I never went to the studio high or drunk. Um, like if I was in there to work and I was in there to work on a song or I was in there to sing or do a track, I was always clear headed. Even in the worst of times where I was at the, you know, kind of in the throes of my addiction, I still never walked on stage high and drunk. Um, I might've been a little hungover from the night before, but I never, ever purposely got high and then went on stage. I never, ever purposely got high, got drunk, and then went into a studio and then knowing that I had to do, I had a session. Um, But when I wasn't on stage, you know, and, uh, it, you know, once my track was done or my studio time was done, it's just, you know, I immersed myself in that lifestyle. I mean, you're talking to a, you're talking to an individual that's lucky to be alive from that world. But it's also you're talking to somebody that understands that um, for me personally, um, I've been clean since March 1st of 2016. Um, I got clean in 2011, but I had a slip up in 2014. Um, But the dynamic of all of that is what I had to learn more than anything was the fact that there is another individual inside of my mind that does not want to hang out and party with me. Um, ultimately, he's trying to kill me. Um, you know, I, I admire people, people that go in with substance abuse, 12-step programs, rehab if you need it. Um, all those elements. Try everything that you can to survive. That's how I would say it. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that a lot of people's rock bottom, sometimes they don't come back from it. I've had some serious rock bottoms. I'm lucky to be alive. 
and I don't take it for granted. Um, but what I would say is for me, I had to do it, I had to do it inside of myself. Um, I often tell people that, uh, I didn't do drugs today. I didn't drink today. I have no idea what I'll do tomorrow. That part of my life, I have to do one day at a time, but a really good friend of mine, a young lady who, uh, is still to this day, she's a great friend of mine. Her name's Teresa. Um, she said something to me that was probably the most profound thing when it comes to my addiction of the 45 years that I've been on this earth. Um, she said to me in the throes of my worst, uh, she said, um, you have a lot of people that love you. You have a lot of people that depend on you. I'm going to tell you something. I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to me good. I go, okay. She said, you are way more dangerous when you're sober. When you are clear-headed and you are focused and you are locked in, that is when you are the most dangerous. And what she meant by that was the idea that being inebriated is that I'm this fun-loving guy and that everything's cool and everyone wants to be around me is the complete opposite of what the reality is. You're just not meant to be that. That other part of you that's inside you is not trying to have fun with you. It's trying to end you. But when you are clear-headed and when you are sober, that's when you're the most ferocious. And that really, it was like a light bulb, like literally went off. So when I think back to the younger days and, and, and all of the drug use and everything of that nature, and I'm just lucky to be alive. And of course, with drug and alcohol comes sex. Yep. Uh, and were you partaking there too? That was the interesting thing about me. Um, no, not really. Um, th that was never my jam. It really wasn't. Like The one thing about me is that the women in my life, um, a lot of them... Uh, there's not that many of them and I'm still 90% of them. I'm still friends with them and, and I still talk to them. I, I was always monogamous. Um, you know, if I loved you and I was in a relationship with you, um, then, you know, me and my son's mother, you know, we were never married, but we have a great relationship. We were together for a long time. Um, and, I adore her and I appreciate her and we have a great relationship and we have an amazing son. Um, and I respect her wholeheartedly. Um, she's a huge part of why, why I'm here. You know, she, I mean, if I think back, I mean, she was the one that handed the CD. She's kind of the one that she kind of passed the torch, you know, passed the torch, you know, in a lot of ways, but the women in my life, I, I have such a massive respect for women on so many levels because of the women that raised me. And like my mother, you know, my mother was the one that taught me to like, you know, don't shake hands, you know, like a wimp. You know, she was like, you know, when you shake someone's hand, whether it's a girl or, a, you know, a, a male or a female, like you have to be stern. You have to look them in the eye. Like, you know, she taught me how to be a gentleman, but she also taught me how to be tough, how to stand up for myself, how to be who I am, um, you know, how to be prideful and, and what have you, but also how to help each, you know, help people out and, and be a good man. You know, my, her mother, my granny, she gave me all of my work ethic. You know, um, and she's 91 years old and she's beyond a spitfire. I mean, she's still all there, which is amazing because she gives, you know, she's she's an incredible individual. And that might be a lot of the reason why um, I've just always had an immense amount of respect for women. And, you know, uh, 
that type of thing, like orgies and all that kind of stuff, and a bunch of women and all that. That never really was my. That never really was my thing. So why did it end with the mother of your so, uh, son? We just weren't meant to be together. Not in that way. We have a beautiful son. We co-parent together very well. She's a beautiful woman inside and out. I adore her. Um, I think she's, I think she's amazing. You know, it's just, we're just not, you have to be an adult and look at the situation and, you know, we're better as co-parents than we are together. And, you know, it, it doesn't change my respect for her and, you know, my appreciation for her. And I think it's vice versa. Did you want to have a kid or were you freaked out about having a kid? No, our son was planned hundred percent. Like I remember at the time too, she was like, I know you don't want to get married, but I want to, I, yeah, it was both of us. You know, she was just like, I know you don't want to get married, but I would really like to have a child and I would really like to have a child with you. So would you think about it at least? And she never pressed me. She, it was just like, we thought about it and had to think about it hard. And, you know, so did I, we were young. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a conscious decision, you know, from the two of us. And would you have any more children? I'm focusing on the, <laughs> I'm not anytime soon. <laughs> um, I, I have such an affection for my, my son, you know, my son is 15 years old and, you know, he's six feet tall and he's playing basketball and he's, he's so wild and awesome on so many different levels. Like I, I'm blessed that I have him and, you know, I would want to be able to focus and concentrate on my children. And the one thing about my son is that from the moment that he was born, and I'm, I'm saying this for a reason because it's important to know this, um, you, if you're going to bring a child into the world, you need to be there for them. You need to focus on being a parent because it's not their responsibility. It's your responsibility. And until he's 18 years of age, he's my responsibility. But you know what? Even after that, he's, your, you know, he's my son. So I need to be able to concentrate on him. And you know, the younger years of his life, I wasn't there as much. You know, Not physically anyway. I was there and... I've always been there financially and supportive in all of those elements. Um, and I will fly in, you know, when I can, even if I can only fly in for like a day or two days just to be with him, I'll be with him. And he, he's never known any different. You know what I mean? So the thing is, is that some people might think that we have a, an, an interesting relationship. And sometimes people will be like, you know, you should probably spend more time with your son. And I have to politely tell them me and my son and our relationship is between me and my son. Because when I'm with him, we don't talk about the band. When I'm with him, we don't talk about me. When I'm with my son, it is only him. That's the only thing I care about. That's the only thing I want to be. He's the only thing I, I want to concentrate on. And the other side of that, too, is it's not that he doesn't know that I'm in a band, but because I've never made it about me from the moment he was born, uh it doesn't really necessarily mean anything to him. You know, I want him to have his own life. I want him to be able to grow up and not have this kind of, uh, you know, oh, your dad is this or, or what have you. I keep a low profile that going back to the beginning of our, our talk with each other, you know, being a rock star, I'm only a rock star or a performer for the, 
for the set time. You know, I'm I'm pretty modest, you know, uh, when I'm not on tour. What do your parents say about your success? Very proud. Like, like really, really proud. You know, um, I think that uh, people should understand this too. This one of the biggest songs in our catalog. You know, we just released a brand new song um, off of the new record, which is our. We it's crazy to say this. We just released our thirtieth single as a band in the last two decades. It's mind blowing to me. Um, and I go back to a song called Second Chance. And the reason I go back to that song is it's a big song in our catalog, but that song came from when I found out that I got dropped. My parents had found out I got dropped from the first record um, contract, but then I had been re-signed. And my mom was just like, what do you mean you've been re-signed and, and now you're leaving to go where? She She had a hard time kind of wrapping her head around it. And I remember we kind of got into it with each other before I before I left for this, what would become, you know, I left home. Because the first band, I was signed and I was in Knoxville when I got signed. So we did all the work in Knoxville. So I was still home. I was still there. But now I was going to leave. And I remember sitting the Sunday before I left to go to uh, Florida to meet Steve. We used to, when I was a kid, she would, um, on Sundays, she would go to McDonald's and she'd get McDonald's breakfast on Sundays. And we'd have like, we'd have pancakes together and, you know, we'd do hash browns and sausages, all that kind of stuff. It was like our thing growing up on Sunday. So I remember I woke up on a Sunday and I could smell it in the house. And I like walked upstairs to the, to the kitchen and my mom had it all laid out. Like, um, it was just for me and her. And she was like, well, you had breakfast with me? And I was like, uh, Yeah. Very sweet. But here's the thing. And if I can tell you a little bit about my history for just a quick second, going back to being a hard kid to raise, I also got in trouble with the law in, in my hometown a lot. I was, I, was, I was a roughneck. And I think that it's important to kind of know that because my mom and my dad went through a lot with me and they, they loved me unconditionally. So we're sitting there. And we're having breakfast and we get kind of done. I can tell my mom's getting a little emotional. So I, I, I remember grabbing her hand and being like, you okay? And she looked at me and she said, I want you to get out of here. I want you to run as fast as you can go. Because I have no idea what this life you're searching for is or what it means. But I know it must mean everything to you because you're willing to sacrifice everything for it but you can't stay here. You can't stay in this town because this town is going to swallow you up. And I remember her giving me permission. She said, whatever it is that you're going after it, go get it, you know, and don't, but, but don't you dare stop, go get it. And, you know, years later, I'm sitting in a studio and I remember the first chord rang out when we were, when we wrote it. And, um, I just remember hearing the first couple chords of the course. And the very first thing out of my mouth was tell my mother, tell my father, I've done the best I can.
to make them realize this is my life. I hope they understand. I'm not angry. I'm just saying that sometimes goodbye is a second chance. And I'm, I'll get emotional about it, but I have no choice because I have to. Um, but, you know, she, she gave me my second chance. You know, that's why that song, I think that song resonates with so many people. Um, but, you know, a mother's love, you know, for their son, especially, you know, what she had to endure to give me this amazing gift. And to tell me that, uh, she goes, me and your dad may not fully understand, but we're with you. We're on your team. Go get it. So when did you start to see some money from the band and what did you do with the money? I'll tell you this. I remember the very first time, <laughs> I remember the first time I didn't have a publishing deal yet. And the first single was, uh, was fly from the inside and, uh, me and my producer Dave were we're hanging out here right now. We were just talking about Fly from the Inside. I'm in the studio right now, uh, the studio that played the first single for the very first time on air right now. See, this is how the universe is real. Um, but uh, I remember the first single was Fly from the Inside, and it had been played. I mean, I think it was uh, it made it to number five on the mainstream rock chart. But I didn't have a publishing deal. This is one another thing with Bill McGathy. Bill McGathy had all of these, like back in the day, like two th- between 2002 and 2006, publishing companies were giving out insane amounts of money to like brand new bands and, and what have you. And they were doing this because they knew they'd never recoup. <laughs> so they could just keep getting the residuals later on, um, which unfortunately is, you know, once again, going back to the music business. Remember, kids, it's a business. Um, so uh, pay attention. Um, but the very first time I got any real money was a publishing check because Bill was like, you're not signing these publishing deals because the catalog is too strong right now, not for a debut album. And I remember he got all kinds of hell for this, um, because people were like, what are you doing? You can make so much money off this right now. He's like, no, I'm, I want to be a part of this band's career. I'm not trying to cash in right now. I'm trying to look at longevity. So they don't need to sign a publishing deal right this second. Um, so because I had the writer's portion of the song, and I had 50% of the song because I wrote all the lyrics, um, you have to understand I'd never, ever dealt with anything like this before. I'm 23 years old, and the very first check, and this is in 2000 and very, very beginning of 2004, Leave a Whisper came out in May 2003, I believe May 27th. Is when the record came out. And this was like roughly, I think, February of 2004. And I got a check for $77,000. And I did not know what to do. Like, I just remember like calling my mom and being like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain this mom, but I have a check, but I've never seen a number on a check this big. And she was like, well, what is it? Like a couple of thousand, is it a couple of thousand dollars? I'm like, it's $77,000. And like, she dropped the phone. I remember it was a clunk. <laughs> and I'm like, mom. And she was like, no, no, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> she, it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, she was like, it's how much? And, you know, and, you know, 
God bless her. You know, she worked at a bank my whole life. So like the very first thing she did, she was just like, we've got to open you up a money market account. And <laughs> all these things. She was just like, you've got, she was like, please. And my mom was so rad about all that. She helped me so much in the very, very beginning with, with all that. But yeah, that was the first like real check I ever got. And I just did not know what to do with it. But because of my mother, I was able to, I, I invested it. So thanks, mom. Okay. But you've been at this for over 20 years now. Yeah. Have you saved most of the money or have you spent it in that you, which you did spend, what did you spend it on? I mean, in the first, I mean, I do remember this, um, because I don't want to bore you with all the details of like necessarily, you know, the ins and outs of everything. I mean, this is what I'll say to everybody out there. If you want to be successful financially in the music industry, write your own songs. Like, that's what I'll tell you. And you need to learn how to play live. Like, you get those two things going for you, you're going to be okay. Um, oh, and the other thing, you got to have tenacity. And don't worry, you can learn how to have tenacity. You, It's a skill. You have to get good at it. You know, what do they say? You know, 10,000 hours and then 10,000 more. Um, but I'll let you know, one of the ri most ridiculous nights of my life um, with, with having that kind of money on the first record, I remember we were, our schedule, we were touring, we did like 22 months straight on Leave a Whisper. And when I say 22 months straight, I'm not talking about like we would have like two months off and then go out for three months and then we'd have like a couple of weeks here and then, you know, we go back out for another two weeks and like that. I'm talking about 22 months straight, like Sometimes, I mean, I think the longest we ever did, I remember one time we did nine shows in a row. Like, it was just crazy, you know, and you're young and you can do it and, you know, this and that and the other, but like, you can't sustain that. Um, nobody can. Uh, and I remember we had just been out and this was like the back end of, of, of 2004. So the record came out and in 2003. So was, this was probably November of 2004 and we're in Houston, Texas. And I hadn't had a shower in like, I think it was something, it was nasty, man. I mean, it was like two weeks. I hadn't had a shower. And I was so like, we we were able to get a hotel, I remember, because we had two days off. So like I took money because I had money at this point in time. And so I said, I remember I took like 10 grand. And I like for the for those two days and I bought everybody in the crew hotel rooms. We stayed at a super, super nice like Hyatt or a Hilton. And, um, you know, the bus was in there and took care of that. All I wanted that night was a steak. I just wanted a steak dinner. That's all I wanted. And I wanted to be alone. I remember that. And so I went to this. I asked the uh, I asked the uh, the front desk clerk. I said, is there like a really nice steakhouse around here in walking distance? And he said, yeah, there's a there's a place called Houston's like about 500 feet from here. It's right over there. So I walk over to Houston's. I don't remember what kind of, uh, what day of the week it was. So I walk in, I've not showered yet. I'm just kind of, you know, getting off the bus, this and that and the other. I go in and it's a nice place. And this young lady at the front kind of like is a little wild eyed because I don't, I mean, I look pretty rough and she goes, can I help you? And I was like, I just want to sit in the back. I just want a table on my own. I won't be a bother. I just want a steak dinner. 
please will you seat me? Because everybody was dressed up and fancy and stuff like that. For whatever reason, man, she was cool with me. She let me sit in the back. So I go in the back, had a cool waiter. The waiter came up to me and was like, what do you want to drink? And I was like, wine, like red wine. I didn't, I didn't drink red wine. I drank Jägermeister and Jack Daniels and, you know, just liquor. And I, but I was like, I'm, I'm in a nice place. I want to, I want to, I want a steak dinner and I want some red wine, you know, just a redneck on payday is what we call it. Um, and, uh, remember this is 2004. So I had a great server. So I said, show me like, what's a good bottle of wine. He was like, I'm going to give you a, a, a bottle of Opus, Opus one. For some people that are listening to this, they'll know what Opus one is. Um, so he brings it to me. It was like a, I think it was like a 2000 or something like that. But I remember the bottle that he gave me, the first bottle was at the time, it was a $600 bottle of water or a $600 bottle of wine. Um, and I was like, cool. And he just opens it. So I take that bottle of wine out and I take another bottle of wine out and I had a steak dinner and I was, you know, feeling full, very drunk. And what I noticed though, when I leaned back in the, the booth that I was in is that they had this corridor of these two giant glass. It was like a corridor in the center of the restaurant and it was filled with bottles of wine. So like their wine cellar was like in the center of the restaurant. And so I asked the kid that was the waiter, I was like, can I go in and look at those wines? Because there's a really, really big bottle of wine in there. Is, am I, am I seeing things? And he was like, yeah, that's like a, we call that a, a, a Magnum bottle. It's like, it's, it looks almost like cartoonish. But it's a real bottle of wine. It was a 1980 bottle of Opus One. It was $7,000. And so I walked in and uh, I'm in there looking at it. And the kid that let me in there. So here's this like, I look like a bum. I look like a homeless person in the middle of this nice restaurant because you could see through the, the 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 wine thing and whatever and all these people are looking in because there's this wino in there literally and so the manager runs in and he's like get out of here what are you doing in here and so the waiter runs in he's like no 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 that's my patron or that's my that's my customer and he's like the manager's like what and he's like no no, no he's with me he's with me he just bought like this he like he he's with me and I looked at the manager and I was like how much is this bottle of wine this big bottle of wine <laughs> and he was like Sir, you need to leave the restaurant. He was like, "No, like, I, how, how much is this bottle of wine?" And he was like, "I'll go look. I'll go. How about that? I'll go look." But you need to get out of here. I'm like, "Okay, I'm gonna take the bottle with me." He's like, "You're gonna leave the bottle right there." So he walks out, and the the kid that's my waiter is like, "You gotta go." And I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna get my bottle of wine." And I take this bottle of wine. It's like a giant. It's like a baby. It's huge. And so I walk it out, and I walk. I'd already paid my bill at this point in time with the server. And so I go up to the front where the manager is checking out the, uh, to see how much this bottle of wine is. And he looks at me and he goes, it's $7,000. And so I give him my credit card and I was like, put it on this. And he laughs at me. And he's got all these like really hot girls around him and stuff, little hostesses and this and that and the other. And he's trying to be, you know, whatever. And uh, he basically runs the card, and it's approved. And he goes, and you just see his face drop. And I'm like, is there a problem? He's like, no. 
and he hands me the 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 ticket and I take the ticket and I sign it and I throw the bottle over my shoulder and I walk to the doors and I turn around and I yell the line from Scarface to the entire restaurant say good night to the bad guy and I walked out <laughs> <laughs> and then I walked out wow that's an amazing story. I could uh, talk about that for 10 minutes, but how many houses do you own and how many cars do you own? I don't own a house and I don't own any cars. I had a house in Thousand Oaks, California from 2011 to 2016, and then I sold it because of those times that I was there. Um, of the five years that I was in the house, I was only inside the house maybe seven months, seven or six or seven months. Um I sold it to a family uh, when I went on tour in 2016, um, and I haven't had a home since. So I live in hotels, and I rent cars everywhere that I go because I'm not in a location long enough uh, to merit owning a house because I move constantly. I mean, I'm on the road, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, um, uh you know, I'm probably on the road, even off cycle, I'm, I'm on the road around 280 days out of the year because I'm constantly doing business for the band. I'm constantly taking meetings and doing certain things and I'm networking with other, you know, procedures and different things that we're setting up for the band and different timelines and touring. And so I'm constantly moving. Uh, I'll eventually figure out where I want to like, you know, put roots down and, and what have you. It, my son will need to be a little bit older, so I know kind of where he's going to be and where he's going to go. He wants to go to the NBA. Um, he's a hell of a basketball player. Um, we're going to see what happens with that. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense right now, and I'm on the road so much. But, uh, yeah, I am a, I am the definition of a modern-day gypsy. Without, uh, I don't steal, though. <laughs> I love you, gypsies. <laughs> what credit card do you use? Uh, my... The, the card that I use the most is my American Express uh, Platinum. That's the one I use the most. Have they solicited you for a Centurion card? Yes. It's, it's, not a, it's not a myth. It is a real thing. And you just said it's not worth the price? It's just, I mean, it's just, it's more of a status. And here's the thing about, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, American Express, I love you. I love you for all that you do. I, you're, the, you're a great company. I'm not, I'm not even joking. Um, but I got to say this. The platinum card is going to give you 100 times more benefits than the black card. There's, I mean, it's a status thing, the, the black card. And the thing about it is, is if you want to get down to the, the brass tacks of it, the platinum card is going to give you way more benefits, especially owning an LLC, being in a band with all the flights and the hotels and all those different types of things. I mean, you just get exorbitant amount more points on the platinum card than you would on uh, the black card. It just doesn't make any sense. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Okay, so... You know, the world has even changed musically since you've been in the landscape. So what do we know? Streaming dominates. Uh, Many artists are anti-streaming. There's a lot of negativity about labels. Rock used to be the dominant format. It's not the dominant musical style now. What do you think about all this? I think that whoever wrote that... um isn't a touring musician and isn't somebody that makes music for a living and writes songs for a living. Um, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just being honest. Um, The reality of that is sometimes that type of ideology comes from journalists that are getting fed certain stats from other journalists, from other conglomerates. What I would tell you is this. Anytime you have an opportunity for your music to be heard, say thank you. Thank you very, very much. Because at the end of the day, the evolution of the music industry is not going to stop. Like, it's just not going to. So you have a lot of people in the beginning of the streaming era that were complaining about streaming and these young kids today and, you know, this younger generation doesn't know anything about what it takes to make a record and put it on a CD and, and, and have all these. What about all these stores? And I'm like, you're absolutely right. They have no idea what a CD is because they didn't grow up in that era. They have no idea what it is. That's not their fault, first of all. And so you sound like you sound bitter to, these, to this younger generation when you're acting like that. You got to get on their level and understand that once again, ladies and gentlemen, it's a business. It's called the music business for a reason. 
And so what you got to do is you have to learn how to maneuver. We often talk in Shinedown about the brick wall. If you run headfirst into a brick wall, I guarantee you the brick wall will win. You got to figure out how to negotiate with it, how to go around it, go under it, go, um, you know, there are other ways to look at the obstacles in front of you. But I will tell you this. We were the number one album the first week that Planet Zero came out on six different charts on Billboard. And one of those charts, we were the number one record on vinyl. And, you know, the other side of that, too, is we are a physical selling band. We signed 17,000 covers of Planet Zero before the album came out. How did we do that? We signed 17,000 covers because we sold 17,000 covers in a pre-sale um, before the record came out because we gave everybody an option. If you want a signed copy of this record, if you buy it now, you'll get a signed copy. And we actually had to cap it because we could have kept going. It's just we didn't have the physical time to keep signing records because all four of us, 17,000, it took us like, it took us, we, we had to send, I remember we had to send them to, to, to each other because we weren't all together at the, at, at the time before we got on the road. But that's what I mean. I'm using that as an example because there are ways to sell your music. You know, there are ways to do these things. And the thing that we look at with the streaming services are we go to them and say to them, we would love for you um, to think about us for all your playlists. We have a record coming out. We have a new single coming out. We've got a new video coming out. Terrestrial radio. I cannot say this enough. And it's not because I'm in the birthplace of one of the greatest radio stations in North America. But the, the point being is that rock radio, but just terrestrial radio in general, has been there for us from the beginning. By the way, we're one of the only bands in the United States that has crossed five different formats uh, multiple times in the last 20 years. When Casey Kasem signed off the air, probably one of the most famous American DJs in the history of radio, after 39 years of being in radio, when he signed off the air because it was the number one song in the country on the Hot 100 was Second Chance. So we know what it means to cross formats, to not... to should not have boundaries it shouldn't be about your music shouldn't be put into a box don't let nobody don't let them put you into a box like the the dynamic of the fan and the artist that's a relationship that has to be there has to be respect involved in that but to the people that talk about how if streaming ruined the business or it ruined the model maybe you're being lazy maybe you're not looking at it the right way like nobody owes you anything they really don't. We can all talk about it in this industry. I hear it all the time how people just talk about, you know, they're not making any money and, you know, their music is worthless and it's disposable. And why should I even record music? Well, then quit. Quit. Because there is somebody that will take your place. Somebody wants it more than you do. And I just, we've curated this fan base that is every single year continuously growing. And that's because we still sell physical records we in my opinion we let the fans talk to us about our merchandise from our sweatshirts to our hats to our hoodies to our you know all of the merchandise that we present to the music to the way that they interact with us our websites our platforms all the streaming services you know i could just go down the list i don't want to be you know giving everybody 
favorites and and what have you, but YouTube and Apple Music and Deezer internationally and Spotify, Shazam, Pandora. We're part of the four billion stream club in Pandora. They just gave us a plaque like three three months ago. I'm still baffled by that. You know, it's there's a lot of success here and it does generate revenue. And believe me, we have a system of what we do in this band that did not happen overnight, especially when it comes to what we do live. Like we're responsible for 77 crew members now, including, and that's not like, that's truck drivers, that's bus drivers, that's all the techs, that's tour managers, production managers, lighting, pyrotechnics, video, staging. It goes on and on and on. It is a machine. It is a machine that is built by, it's built by the love of the show. It's built by the love of the music. Yes, the music is very important, but there's all these different aspects of how this industry works. And I get passionate about it and I get um, very, very hypersensitive to it and focused because I want people to understand, especially the younger generation, don't, don't limit yourself and don't come up with excuses like, oh, it's this now, or it should be this, or it should be that. There are kids that are being born right now. They're not going to have any idea 10 years from now, like what it was like to either listen to music or sell music or any of that. And that's, you have to evolve. There's a great line in the movie Moneyball where Brad Pitt says, adapt or die. You don't have to sell out. You don't have to sell your soul. You don't have to stop making the music that is truly who you are. But if you want to be in this industry, you have to learn to adapt and you have to figure out what works for you. And you don't have to be a part of the industry if you don't want to. You know, I have this conversation about TikTok. I think it's amazing what TikTok does. Like all of these kids out there that just have insane imaginations and it's just awesome to watch and they're so creative and it just blows me away. And like take the music and take, you know, they'll take all these different songs. I love how the younger generation, they don't care about an expiration date because it doesn't exist for them. They don't care like when a song came out. Like look at Kate Bush with Stranger Things. That rekindled her existence. You know what I mean? Think about Metallica. Not that Metallica isn't working, you know, hard every single year, but look what happened on Stranger Things with Master of Puppets and opening up a big door, a huge door to another generation of fans. That should be embraced. And I just love that the younger generation, they don't care if something came out in 1975. If it sounds good and it's awesome, that's all they care about. I think that's, I think that's awesome. Okay. Uh, needless to say, we do have the internet. And it led to a lot of things you just talked about. But to what degree do you and the band interact with your fans on these varying platforms? And how important do you think that is? I think it's important if you want to. Here's the thing about us. We always try to have, at certain times, a bit of a mystique. Because everything is out there now. There are, there, everything is out there to the public. And some artists choose to just be... Every single second, every part of the day, this is what I'm doing. This is what's happening, you know, and they kind of put their entire lives on display. We, I feel like, have a really, really good balance in that, but we're very involved with our social media. We're very involved with our digital campaigns and what we do and how we interact with our audience, not only in North America, but also just around the globe. So we're also constantly learning, whether it's from Facebook or Snapchat or TikTok or Instagram or, I mean, there's so many different platforms that we use now. And that's another thing too. There's just so many of them. You just want to do your best to be authentic. Like that's our biggest thing is we're, 
Like, I'm not going to go, like, I do TikToks if I think they're cool or it's something that I would do or I find it fun. But will I go and, like, do something silly and, like, do a dance and make myself, you know, why poke fun at myself? Sure. I don't care. You know, as long as it's authentic to me and it's something I would do. Now, if I look at something, I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how you have to to look at it. But I think that it's bad. I think that it's awesome. And I think that it's badass that we have this kind of communication with our audience. Because some people might say that, well, that takes kind of the mystique out of it, doesn't it? Not necessarily. Everybody's different. And it's all in how you want to curate, how you want to curate your social platforms. I mean, there's no, there's no handbook to social media. There's really not. You can see a bunch of stuff on YouTube and they'll tell you about algorithms and all those things. And I'm sure there's a juxtaposition there and you don't want to be desensitized to those platforms and, I'm sure you can get in there and you can, as I would say, you could Mr. Beast it if you wanted to, but there's only one Mr. Beast, you know, and he's brilliant at what he does. But his entire life is an, is, is an algorithm on YouTube. It's why he's got 139 million subscribers. But that's not my that's not my gig. You know what I mean? And I think one of the smartest things that we did for our social media was the fact that we're on a record label that has over 250 artists. And we actually work with two different record labels. We work with Atlantic Records, and then we work with promotion with Electra Records under the Warner Music Group. And about four and a half, I guess it's been five years ago now, I hired a young lady named Morgan Townsend. And who she was, she didn't necessarily know what she was getting herself into um, because I didn't know what she was getting herself into. But going back about five years ago with social media and what have you, you had management companies and you had the labels and they have a digital department and they have somebody there that does digital. But when you have 250 bands, you're only going to be able to concentrate so much on certain bands or certain artists. And it's not even about the genres because it's, it, it's, it's limitless when it comes to that, when you're on a label and you've got all these different genres of music, same thing with a management company, you have all of these different artists, one person, it's just too much work. So what we decided to do was go out and try to find somebody that would be willing to kind of come in and learn with us. And it was basically, what's the job description? You're going to take this band and you and this band are going to figure this out together for what works for this band. We're going to learn how this, what works and what doesn't work. I often tell people sometimes what works for Shinedown is probably not going to work for some other band. And what works for that band, it probably won't work for us. And a lot of times too, when people describe other bands to me, I'm appreciative of that when they're trying to, I guess you would say, give me an analogy, but I also have to tell them, I appreciate you giving me the analogy. I'm not in that band. I'm in this one. So when we hired this young lady, you know, who is our, we gave her a title. We had to create a title. She's, um, she's our social media media manager and she's the director of digital media for Shinedown. But we had to learn how to do all that stuff together. And she works with the label like, a hundred percent of the time she works with management a hundred percent of the time, but she's hired by the band. So I would tell anybody out there with social media, take a certain amount of money and focus, bringing somebody in that can literally manage your social media. Because I'll tell you right now, it can be the difference. If you have a strong social media game in your success, especially, you know, 2023 and beyond, at least right now. Okay. But on your new record, there's all this commentary about 
social media, the internet. We're talking about keeping people off social media sites, keeping uh, certain actors off of it uh, because they consider them to be bad actors. And I'm not talking about people on stage or screen and screen time, et cetera. So how do you know? We just heard all the stuff about social media. Where exactly are you guys at on this? Well, we wrote Planet Zero, the record, in the middle of a pandemic. And in the middle of a pandemic, it was not something that everybody, uh, I mean, we didn't wake up in February of 2020 and be like, you know, it would be fun. (laughs) Um, Let's shut the world down. And uh, we watched the chaos that ensued inside of that. And granted, we don't need to be going on and on about that anymore because that was then and this is now. But you asked me a legitimate question. I want to give you a legitimate answer. Um, You know, we had no choice on this record but to write about what was going on. We tried to have a crystal ball method, if you will, in the beginning of writing this record um, because we looked at each other and we were like, nobody's going to... And we started writing it in 2020. And it was, let's write like it's three years from now. Let's do it that way. We'll just we'll act like this isn't even happening. But it was happening all around us. I arrived in Charleston, South Carolina with Eric, the producer of Planet Zero, and the mixer and the engineer of the record, our bass player, who also did the last record, engineered, mixed it, and produced it. Um, We built a studio in 18 weeks because we didn't know when we were going to be able to get into a studio to start recording. So we just took 18 weeks on his property and built a studio from the ground up. And while we were doing that, we're also watching the news. You couldn't stop but look at your device you know, everything that was going on, the social injustice, the, the, you know, the plague of COVID-19 and everything that was going on with that, the divisiveness. It didn't help that it was an election year. This time in human history where people should have been banding together uh, in America, we had the most, I mean, polarization I've ever seen in the, you know, at the time, the 44 years that I've been alive. So trying to write a, a record on good faith of all these different elements that, you know, we're trying to act as if this stuff isn't going on around us was virtually impossible. And I just remember Eric looking at me when I got to to South Carolina in June, he said, it feels like we're on planet zero. That's exactly what he said. And planet zero was the first song written. And I know what you're talking about with, um, you know, the, the language in the record and, and the dynamic of, of certain things, you know, the last song, on the album, which is a song called What You Wanted. Um, And it talks about, it has that lingo in there, like it and subscribe and all these different types of things. And, you know, the chorus of that song is like, goodbye, so long, see you later, good night. Did you get what you wanted? You know, is this what you wanted? Um, And that, you got to remember, that was written in the midst of everything that was going on in not only the United States, but the entire world. And we're a band that has to talk about what we know the situations that we're in front of and the scenarios that were being presented. And once again, how do you overcome it? You, you have to talk about what it is and what it means and what's actually going on, but you also have to dissect it and make sure that everybody's looking at everything um, with the wool not being pulled over their eyes. And there's so much symbolism in the record, but there's a lot of truth in the record. And... I remember one of the earliest songs that was written on Planet Zero, aside from Planet Zero, the song, and What You Wanted, those were 
two of the songs that were actually written first. But I remember, I think it was right after we did, I think it was right after uh, What You Wanted, my favorite song on the record was written. Uh, and that's a song called A Symptom of Being Human. And A Symptom of Being Human in, in a lot of ways is a gift. And why I call it a gift is on a, every record, you hope to get one gift. You don't always get a gift on a record. But what a gift is, is a song that writes itself. It comes out of nowhere. You didn't wake up that day expecting to write this song with these heartfelt lyrics and this crescendo of sound. It just happens. And that's exactly what occurred with A Symptom of Being Human. And the interesting thing about it was inside of all the chaos that we were watching on television and on our smartphones and we're trying to dissect everything that was going on. We're trying to build a studio and we're trying to think about what kind of record we're going to make and are we going to piss people off? And we've never talked about this type of stuff and we've never done this before and we've never been political and we've never talked about these things. What are we doing? Is this the right thing? So many things that were just coming to a boiling point and then all of a sudden this song falls into our lap. And it's literally an example of the human spirit. It's a, it's, it could not be a more honest and heartfelt song about being a human being and about living on this planet and having the gift of being alive right now because you're not promised tomorrow. And, you know, a symptom of being human is exactly that. It, it talks about the uncertainty of tomorrow. It talks about the uncertainty of oneself. It encompasses this time in human history where everybody is now talking about mental health, where it used to be about diet and exercise. Now it's about survival of the human spirit. It's about really the survival of our species. Because during the, the pandemic, suicide rate, this is the most disturbing thing about it. In 2019, at the end of the year, one thing I should tell your listeners is that um, Shinedown, we've, for the last decade, we've been ambassadors for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And uh, the, the projection at the end of 2019 was that the year 2020 was on record and hopes statistically to be the lowest number, to be the lowest percentage of suicide in North America in 2020, in over a decade. Like they were projecting for, for the rate to drop drastically in 2020. And then the pandemic hit. In November of 2020, the, the stats were released. And I don't have the exact numbers. But I do remember this. That men and women aged 14 to 45, it was the highest percentage in the last decade. So it was completely reversed. What was supposed to be the lowest percentage became the highest percentage in over a decade. And that was part of why Symptom was such an important song and how it was about, you know, it's, it's okay to struggle. It's okay. I know it feels like it's never going to end. I know it feels like there's no tomorrow. I know it feels like everything is just crashing around you. You have to hold on. You've got to hold on. I'm not saying that you're not going to have to put the work in. I'm not saying that it's not going to be difficult to get out of that hole that we talked about at the beginning 
you know, where sometimes you got to fall in a hole to figure it out. But the world didn't, quote unquote, people didn't, quote unquote, ask for a pandemic to happen. It just happened. Now you got to figure out a way to give everybody back their spirit. Now you got to figure out a way to build people up. And the most powerful way to do that that I know of is with music, because where I come from, music is medicine. And um, that's why I just feel it's, you know, that song is extremely important. Okay. You know, you've talked about the new album. Underneath this is the P word, politics. Yeah. Now, you have a luxury. You didn't go on a plane for your first two decades, basically. Now you've been all over the world many times. Okay. Now, we live, okay, in terms of my experience with Tennessee, which is relatively limited. I've been to Nashville. I've been to Memphis. Both in Tennessee couldn't be more different. Right. I know some people from Knoxville. I have not been to Knoxville. But what I'm saying is, yes, there is red and blue. There is vax. There is anti-vax. There is Twitter. We should have certain people shouldn't be on there. Certain people should be on there. Since you, and in addition, perception is that rock fans lean right modern rock fans as opposed to people who fans of classic rock, whatever. Yeah. Well, what do you see since you're out there and what's going on? What I see honestly is the best way I can say it is this, because this is how I feel and how I view it all. It goes back to your smartphone. Because that's kind of a part of us now in our society. And anybody can argue with me if they want to, but I mean, it's just the reality. Um, for the for people that can afford it, and it's very affordable now because it's a part, like there's so many people that I know that they will literally go into an absolute panic attack if they forget their phone or they, like, they, they dropped it or they left it somewhere or they busted or whatever. I mean, I've watched people like, People that I've known for years, like if something happens to their smartphone and they lose it or they forgot it or it's not with them, they will freak out. So why am I saying that? And why am I, you know, what does that have any relevance to do with rock and roll and to the right? And, or, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican, red or blue or liberal or, or what have you. I will tell you this right now. For me personally, I think that there should be three parties. I don't think there should just be two parties. I think two parties, it's kind of ridiculous at this point anyway. I think there should be a third party. Uh, will that ever happen? I have no idea. And I'm talking about in North America, but that's my opinion. Um, because it's just, it's intense on both sides. And the thing about it is, what I would tell you is this. If you get outside of your phone, if you get off of certain social media and take a break and go out into the real world, I'm talking about the real world where, and you're talking about Tennessee, Memphis, Knoxville, Nashville. Those three places are actually more similar than you think. Um, Because a lot of Nashville, Knoxville, and Memphis, uh, a lot of the same-minded people, you'd find them in Colorado. In Colorado, you'd probably find them in Maine. In Maine, I bet you, I'm going to say it, it's going to probably not necessarily sit well with certain people because they won't believe me, but I'm going to tell you it's true. People in Maine you would probably find that the way that they look at politics is right in line with a lot of people in Florida. Go, here's the thing, what I'm getting at. 
when you go out into the real world and you get off of this constant news feed, remember how back in the day news would come on three times <laughs> and that's all you got and they would just tell you the news and like at three o'clock they would give you the news and then at like 11 o'clock they give you the news and sometimes five o'clock at five o'clock they give you the news they give it to you again at 11 in a lot of places the five o'clock news was the same as the 11 o'clock news <laughs> it, it didn't change that much you have a constant filter a constant iv of just carnage how bad is it like let's get every bad <laughs> it's nothing can be good we can't have anything that's good it's got to be bad <laughs> And it's just, it's clickbait a lot of times. You know, they're looking for likes. They're looking for, they want you to hit the button. So if the from the political side of things, when you go out into the real world, people aren't trying to destroy each other. I'm not, I'm not, I don't see that. I, I don't see people, you know, actively trying to mess with one another. I don't actively, see, and I'm, I've gone all over the world. I will continue, God willing, you know, to go all over the world. Um, for as long as that I'm meant to be here. Um, but that is a focus that it doesn't necessarily have to become political. And I often tell people this too. In society, we live in a country where it's a democratic republic. And it's, it's laid out a certain way for a reason. And everybody has an opinion about it. Now, do I think that certain amendments should be updated? Yes, I do think that they should. Some of them. But a lot of them are in that Constitution for a reason. To not have full-on anarchy. To not have full-on just chaos. And the, the best thing that I can tell you is I believe that human beings are inherently good. I truly do. Because I've seen it with my own eyes on a daily basis. If you're looking for chaos, I guess you can find it anywhere. But in the last three years, what I've noticed and what I've seen is that everyday people that make up the majority of this planet, I'm not just talking about America, I'm talking about the majority of the planet. There are more of us than there are of them. And what I mean by that is political figures should be put in office by the people to represent the people. You're not God. That's not the way it should be looked at. And I'm not for career politicians. I don't think that, you know, if you were in the Senate or the Congress, you can, you know, you get in when you're 35 that you need to stay there until you're 100. So, you know, I'm saying a lot of things that a lot of people feel. I'm trying to explain also, too, it's not just about rock and roll. It's not just because somebody is into rock and roll music. That person could be into hip hop music. That hip hop music person could be into country music. You know, music is our saving grace, if you will. It's what keeps us all. It's what glues us together. So isn't it interesting in human history that the universe and Mother Nature tested everybody? Because I can tell you right now, you're talking about the Internet. The Internet, everyone wants to say is undefeated. I can tell you that is not true. Mother Nature is undefeated. She proved that. And she's proved it time and time again. And isn't it interesting how the universe and Mother Nature gave human beings an opportunity to see what we would do in these last three years. And everybody has to kind of look at each other and go, what did we do? What have we done? And what are we going to do now? And that's the biggest question. But when it comes to music, that's what joins us together. So you take two years and everybody says, stay away from each other. Don't go anywhere near one another. 
stay away. You want to do your part? Stay apart. It's just very interesting how life um, un- unravels sometimes and unfolds at the same time. We don't know how long we're here. But while we're here, I think we should do everything that we possibly can to be together and to celebrate together and to push forward together. That's ultimately what I see in people. It's not about red or blue. It's just about being human and being respectful. Okay. So you've had this incredible career in excess of two decades. You've had a lot of success. Looking forward, what would you like to accomplish or what mark would you like to leave? Bob, we were having such a good time and now you want to get all dark. <laughs> uh, like you're talking about the end of stuff, what I want to leave. I haven't even begun. Um, I think that uh, for me, and I know for the band, when I look at it all, I want to see all the guys that I'm in a band with, I want to see them fulfilled. I want to see Eric and Zach and Barry. I want to see them, all four of us, I mean, because we are in a band together. I want us to be honest with each other because we've always been honest with each other. That's one of the reasons why we've been a band for as long as we have. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's important because it comes down to the band. Your happiness depends on your mental health, your communication with each other. You know, because as time changes, two decades, one guy might want one thing in the beginning, another guy might want something different 10 years down the line, another guy might, you know what I mean? It goes back and forth. It's constantly evolving. I want to be able to continue to make the best music and the strongest music and the best songs that we possibly can. Um, I want to continue growing the audience. I want to continue having the opportunity and the blessing of being able to travel the world. There's, yes, you were right. I've, we've been all over the world to a lot of different places, but we've not been everywhere. And there's a lot of places that we want to go to, and there's a lot of places that we want to play for, and a lot of people we want to play for that we haven't had an opportunity to yet. Um, you know, all of us have kids that are growing up. You know, Zach has two young boys. Uh, Barry's daughter, Stella, is uh, approaching being a teenager. You know, we're all family men, and we love our families. We we care about them. I got to give a lot of credit, too, to the women in, in this in this band and, and the wives because uh, they really do get it. They really do understand what it is we do. We're gone for a long period of time. It's We're at a certain point in our career now where we can bring them out for long periods of time, which helps out a lot. But... Uh, we just want to continue being successful. We're never ever gonna. It's there's never gonna be a top. There'll never ever be a ceiling with us. Um, I don't think it exists. Um, we've always looked at it the same way. Everything that we do together, it's like looking at a mountain. And if you're looking at the mountain and it's just you, and you're saying to yourself, "There's absolutely no way I can get to the top of this." You're probably right, not by yourself, but if you do it together, you're probably limitless. And you know. Each mountain you climb together, you take a minute when you get to the top and you high five, you give each other a hug, you say good job, and you go find a bigger mountain. And that's why we're here. Um, you know, things could change, things could evolve. Um, I think we all want to watch our kids grow up and become young adults and have families, and we want to be there for them too. Um, but ultimately, 
I don't think I can stress it enough how how lucky we are to do what we love for a living. My granny always used to say, if you find something you love that you want to do for the rest of your life, then you'll never work a day in your life. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work. It's, it's hard work, but I live for it. I love it. And um, that in and of itself is a gift to be able to do what you love for a living. So just want to keep grinding. And on that note, I think we're going to close it for today. Uh, we certainly could go on for much longer, but we'll uh, let the audience take a break at this point. So, Brent, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and my audience. It was an absolute pleasure and a massive, massive honor. Thank you so, so much. This is one of the best conversations I've had in the longest time. I had a blast. And I love talking to you, too. Okay. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sense. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.